A few weeks ago, Books and Books hosted an event that was so good and so important. Ibram X. Kendi came to the Carl Gables Congregational Church down the street from our store in celebration of the publication of Magnolia Flower, his moving adaptation of Zora Neale Hurston's story of a young Afro-Indigenous girl who longs for freedom. On this edition of The Literary Life, we relive that evening as Dr. Kendi is in conversation with Dr. Precious Simonette, Florida's 2016 Teacher of the Year. So um, I want to start off by saying that it is truly an honor and a privilege to have this opportunity to speak with you. I think I speak for the room when I say we appreciate your work and we feel that you are an amazing spirit and that you are doing great work around the world. So before I kick off with some questions, um, I would like for you just to tell us a little bit about Dr. Kendi. What would you like to tell us tonight? What would you like to tell us? Well, first, I, I'd like to share, Precious, how excited I am to be in conversation with you. It's not every day you get to, to sit with one of the most illustrious teachers, uh, you know, in, in, in Florida, if not the country. And, you know, I'm just excited about all the work and critical work that you're doing and have been doing with, with our, our young people. I want to thank Books and Books and, of course, Carl Grable's. Uh, Congressional Church. This is a beautiful <laughs> facility, and I'm I'm so excited to 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 be here. I uh, you you ask me to tell you tell me to uh, share something about myself. I'm not used to doing that. That's why I'm fumbling. I think the one thing that 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 I would share, which I think is even in what attracted me to to Magnolia Flower to to adapt, is that I just love people, uh, and I, I love humanity, uh, certainly love uh, black people, and watching people, witnessing people, seeing people uh, being held back, seeing people in pain, uh, seeing people who aren't able to sort of fly is, is really what, what fuels me because of my love you know, of, of people. And I, I think that doesn't necessarily, it may not come across, um, but I, I, I want to convey that that's really what fuels me, you know, and drives me. Absolutely. Um, I think that I would like to know, um, I understand that you've had the opportunity of interacting with Zora Neale Hurston when you were undergrad at FAM. Tell us about that. How was that experience? So yeah, I went to to FAMU, so I feel like I'm. Can, am, am I like a an adopted Floridian? Like, absolutely, absolutely. And I taught at UF too, so you know I feel like I have a connection. Um, so I actually did not read much in middle school and high school. I, I think the books that were put in front of me didn't necessarily engage me. And it wasn't until freshman year at FAMU, English 101 class, <laughs> that, that my professor uh, handed me 
a syllabus with some of the greatest African-American writers in history, which included, of course, Zora Neale Hurston, which included her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And so that, that was really my first exposure to, to Zora Neale Hurston. And I, of course, read that, that novel and fell in love with that novel as, as anyone else who, who reads it. But it really was in graduate school that I, that I returned to Zora's work. And I actually read a book called Mules and Men that, that Zora wrote, which was a, a folklore collection uh, that she compiled. And the way she wrote it, it wasn't just like folks' tales. It was her essentially moving uh, through society, collecting these tales. So it was the story of her engaging with the folk tale tellers as well as the tales themselves. And it was, it was just so fascinating uh, to sort of to see and to listen to these tales uh, that the folks called lies. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's when I, I was able to really begin to see the breadth of her contribution. I mean, it's a treasure book. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm even excited to be adapting some of those tales from, uh, from Mules and Men you know, in future projects. Um, the story Magnolia Flower is so beautiful. Like the book is so it's it's just beautiful to look at first, right? And then to read it, um, there are so many different aspects um, that one could gravitate to. I think I would like you to talk a little bit about what do you think the importance is for children to learn about this history and nature. I think the book calls for that in so many different ways. Can you speak a little bit about that? So I, I there are two lines in, in the book that I think are indicative of what I hope young people, and even those of us who are reading it to our grandchildren or children or students uh, take away. And, and that is at one point early in the book, it, it states that nature knows nothing of death. And it's sort of talking about that in the context of you know, the rivers and the trees and the beauty. And then as it transitions into Magnolia's story, it also says, love knows nothing of death. And I, I, what I'm hoping is, is not just our young people are able to appreciate the beauty of a love story, right. not just that our young people are able to appreciate the beauty of nature, but they're able to, especially in this moment, when there is an existential attack on nature itself, that the, the story and its beauty will allow them to fall in love with nature, especially if they live in an urban or suburban environment. Absolutely. Um, are there any, and I, I, don't, I, I don't know how you're gonna answer this. So, <laughs> so are there any parts of the book that you find to be your absolute 
favorite. Like there are parts of the story uh, when I was looking, you know, reading it, um, and I love the part where the characters are talking about the trees, our trees. They claim the trees. Um, we remember. Like I know that there are there are certain parts of the book that I absolutely love, and I'm curious to know: Do you have any favorite parts of the book? That's like asking your favorite student. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'll, I'll share it if y'all don't tell nobody. Uh, so I, I think for me, and I, this is actually what led me to really to, to reach out to, to, to Zora Neale Hurston's family and begin a conversation about whether I can specifically adapt this short story, Magnolia Flower, I, I never forget. And I think it was in March of 2020, uh, right after the, the nation had shut down. And I had, I was doing these early morning runs through my neighborhood, I think it was in Washington, DC, to just clear my head. Cause I don't know if y'all remember, like those weeks after the nation shut down, there was a lot going on that we were trying to grapple with. And so I used that time, and I was listening to uh, hitting a straight stick with a hook, hitting hitting a crooked stick with a um, a recent sort of collection of, of Zora Neale Hurston's Harlem Renaissance short stories, and one of those was uh, was Magnolia Flower. And I just never forget running in the middle of the street because there weren't any cars out, right? <laughs> Nobody was out, and. And, and listening to the end and how you, you the, the arc of the book is this river telling a love story about Magnolia and John to a brook. And the love story that they're telling is 40 years prior. And then the end, not to give it away, uh, yeah. Magnolia and John return to the setting of the love story and start having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, hug their trees. Mm -hmm. But then they also start thinking, you know what, is, is, are we hearing like some sounds yeah. from a river? Have you ever like heard that before? And in the ending, you know, when I think Magnolia says, you know, I always thought the river knew all about me and you. I mean, it's just so beautiful to me. And it just sort of brought me so much sort of joy in a moment of pain. So I would say that that, and I wanted my, I didn't want in my child, I wanted children everywhere to feel what I was feeling in that moment. Right. Speaking of children, I am very curious to know um, how your daughter feels about this book. What are her thoughts about the book? So she likes the book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she she actually loves the book and she really loves mm -hmm. the illustrations by by Love Is Wise and I don't blame her <laughs> and I, I it you know I don't know for those of you who who, who are reading each night mm -hmm. to to particularly a six year old mm -hmm. who's old enough to tell you no I don't want to read that <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have to read that. Yes. You know, every time we, we read Magnolia mm -hmm. Flower to her, she just gets excited mm -hmm. and, and she glows. And, and, and that's partly why, you know, I, 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 
you know, I, I, I wrote this book and, and the thought that a six-year-old child mm-hmm. can be learning about or reading the story written by mm-hmm. Zora Neale Hurston, right. you know, is, I mean, there's nothing better. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching one of your interviews, um, watched several of them, but there was one comment that stuck out to me, and I was like, oh my God, that's like so beautiful. You say, um, it's important to teach young kids about kindness and love and being anti-racist. And I think that's so important because young kids, they're like sponges, right? Um, They don't know certain things unless we kind of sort of introduce those things to them. And I love the fact of Magnolia Flower, like you mentioned earlier, it's a love story. And I think it is a it is a love story with falling in love with someone else. But I think it also encourages young students or young kids to fall in love with themselves first. And I think that's so beautiful and so important. And my question is, in addition to um, the fact about them loving themselves, what are some other important reasons why this particular story needs to be shared? with the masses, particularly with young students? So I'll give four reasons. Awesome. And be as concise as possible. (laughs) I think first, it is just not often that our children are able to read a story about an Afro-Indigenous person. And so Magnolia Flowers is Afro-Indigenous. And uh, of course, uh, black people and, and indigenous people are grossly underrepresented in, you know, in, in, in children's books. But Afro-indigenous people, uh, particularly from the standpoint of Florida, where Florida has a very rich history of, of Afro-indigenous people, you know, I think that's one reason why. I think for our children to be exposed to the stories, you know, of Afro-Indigenous people. Secondly, I think for our children to be exposed to history, particularly two of the most painful historical moments in U.S. history, from slavery to the Trail of Tears or the forced uh, removal of of Native people from, from Florida, But the context in which they're taught about those moments are more indicative of what was happening. In other words, despite the violence and brutality and pain of of slavery and even settler colonialism, people still were able to find joy and love. And so a, a way to introduce those difficult moments is through human characters, and human characters were still finding love. I, I think it's an incredibly important uh, way to introduce young people to those moments. Uh, I, w- I would say, uh, thirdly, I, and uh, yeah, obviously this is sort of reiterating what I already stated, I, I personally think that the folklore that Zora Neale Hurston collected, the, the stories that she told, stories in folklore that are filled with so much wisdom, so much clarity, so much joy and, and love, so much complexity, 
should be told to our youngest of people who are impressionable. These are the types of stories that, that I think we should be conveying. And, and so I said I was going to give you four reasons. I'll, I'll stop at three. Um, so I would like for you to tell us a little bit about what is coming up. Like, what do you have in the works? I think we want to know. What are you willing to share? Well, I can, so this Magnolia Flowers is the first of six uh, books um, based on Zora's work that I have the honor of, of adapting. And I can share with you some of the the next ones that, that, are, that are coming. So the next uh, board book uh, that, will be, that will be coming uh, early next year is, is entitled The Making of Butterflies. Mm -hmm. And it's based on a folktale uh, in Mules and Men where uh, the storyteller shares how the creator ended up making butterflies. And it's a beautiful story, it's a fun story. And I, I think it's particularly sort of uh, ripe for, for the youngest of children who of course we read board books to. Another uh, book, uh, picture book uh, in, in the series is called Eatonville. Uh, of course, uh, based on Eatonville, Florida and it's based on Zora's story of her own hometown and how it came to be. And really, what it really teaches uh, young people is that we're all from a time and a place. And, and Zora shares the time and the place that made her. And so we're not just made by our parents, we're made by a time and a place. And I, I think it's, an, you know, it's a beautiful sort of story that, that Zora shares and, and then there's another book, probably my favorite, uh, aside from Magnolia Flower in the series, is called The Power of Our. The Power of Our, O-U-R. It's another board book. And it, it is based on a folktale that Zora collected. And the arc of the story is it's between, I believe, two animal characters. Mm -hmm. And one of the animal characters is selfish. <laughs> uh, and that animal character, to not give away the whole tale, sort of loses out on something and comes to realize that that animal character should have worked with the other animal <laughs> character and they would have, that the hour, you know, working together is, is better. And so I think it's a beautiful story for the youngest of of children, and to give one more away, mm -hmm. uh, possibly one of Zora's most important scholarly contributions was collecting the life story of the last known uh, person mm -hmm. to have been involved in the human trade and came on the last mm -hmm. known slave ship, Q. Um, Joe Lewis, mm -hmm. so her story called Barracoon. We're, we're adapting that for middle graders. Wow, got a lot of great stuff coming up. Looking forward to it. I've, I've been doing a little. <laughs> so I mentioned, um, well, Frederick Douglass's quote, quote um, it's easier to build um, strong children than to repair broken men. I think your books are doing that, 
right? I think when students have your books in front of them, you are breathing life into them instead of sucking it out. And I think that is so important right now, especially with what is happening around the world. And um, there are many students who have had the opportunity of reading your book, mine included, right? And um, I would like for you, if it's possible, for you to say something to them. What would you say to them in this time right now um, where we are in the spirit of breathing life into them, right? Inspiring and motivating them to get up the next day, to go to school and to work through life. Like, what would you tell them to inspire and motivate them? All right, how much time we have? Um, <laughs> I, think, I think that um, if I am speaking to a, a student of color, what I would say to that to that student is all of my work, all of the books that I write, all of the um, speeches that I give, all of the research that I've collected shows and conveys a simple truth. And, and that is, there's nothing wrong with you. And there's nothing wrong with you because of the color of your skin. There's nothing wrong with you because of the culture that you practice. There's nothing wrong with you even based on the zip code that you're living in. And, but the world is going to try to tell you something different. And I just want you to know that what is, what is a simple truth that has been proven by scholars the world over is that the problem is society, not you. And I think to a you know, white child, I would sort of convey the same message just in a, in a different type of way. And, and that is that the world is, is oftentimes going to teach you mm -hmm. that there's something right about you because of the color of your skin. The, the world is going to teach you that people like you have more because they are more. Mm -hmm. And if you internalize those ideas, if you believe those ideas, it's going to, at first, you're, those ideas are just not true. You're, you're nice, I'm sorry, you're special when you're nice. You're, you're, you're special and when you share. You're, you're special when you fight for justice but you're not special because you're white. Mm -hmm. And when you start believing that, it's going to disconnect you from humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's not gonna allow you to appreciate the beauty that is yourself and your position in this world. Oh my God. <laughs> Anybody record that? <laughs> Just press repeat every single day. Um, that was beautiful. Um, I, I, I think you, you talked a little bit about why you are inspired to do this work. Um, can you speak a little bit more about what inspires you to keep going? Um, the, the, the world is just very hard right now. And um, it, it seems as, you know, when you are disrupting the status quo, when you are challenging, when you are trying to 
break ceilings and everything, it seems as if more things keep coming at you to prevent you from doing that. And I would like for you to talk a little bit more about what inspires you every day. So I, I think that I'm not only sort of, I'm not only fueled by a love that I have for humanity, but I also try to locate my understanding in history. And, you know, being an historian at heart, I just know that throughout this nation's history, throughout the histories of, of other nations, part of the response to, of course, challenging, radically challenging mm -hmm. the status quo uh, is you're going to be demonized and attacked because either there is an allowance for that the problem <laughs> is what you're talking about or uh, people are going to seek to manipulate the public to believe that no, you're the problem. And, and so I, I try personally when things get difficult because it, it often does, <laughs> at least for me and other people like me, to, to just remember that. Uh, you know, when you turn on the stove, if you put your hand over the fire, it's going to burn. Like, that. this is part of the job. Right. And I'm hoping to build and to contribute to the building of a type of world where that isn't the case. You know, but between now and the other side, you know, it's going to be the case. Are we going to take some questions from the audience? Anybody willing to ask a question? You have a question burning somewhere? So my, so when it happened, I was actually on a call, and people started contacting me, and I was like, you know, what's what's going on? And my initial feeling was horror, largely because it, I was concerned about how this would impact. Justice uh, Jackson's confirmation. And I also was horrified that a sitting US senator uh, would utilize a board book and weaponize it and, you know, to attack uh, someone who should be discussing their legal opinions and not board books. Uh, and so just the spectacle of it all uh, was, 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 was really horrifying and enraging. At the same time, I was experiencing that in many ways behind the scenes. And I had been experiencing that really since the summer of 2020. And, and so on, on, the, on the other hand, 
it was just the latest instance of, of particularly an elected official trying to weaponize and utilize um, and dis distort sort of my work, um, and, you know, and the work of others. And I was also like, whoa, like, he literally pulled out three of my books. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I was hoping, I understood if he's not going to read how to be an anti-racist, but he didn't even read anti-racist baby, <laughs> based on what he was saying. Um, we got this burning question again. It says, what inspires you? You want to know where you get that inspiration from, brother? I will also say I'm, 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 I'm inspired each and every day by people who have, who are just displaying courage. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when people display courage, and what I mean by courage is not necessarily the absence of fear, but, but, but the strength to do what's right in the face of it. I think it, watching people do that, there are people right now who are planning to go to their school board meeting tonight or tomorrow to yet again challenge uh, the, the district members uh, despite the fact that they, ever since they started going, uh, they've been harassed or they've received threatening messages, but they keep going back because what's happening to the kids in their district is an injustice that they can't stand idly by for. Like witnessing that, watching that, knowing that is, is what inspires me. And the beauty is that despite uh, even what's happened in that sense, people have consistently and constantly stood up and, and resisted and demonstrated that they cared more about the livelihood of humanity, the livelihood even of children that they don't know, you know, than their own sort of peace. Absolutely. <laughs> what about Zora Neale Hurston inspires you? So when Zora was writing and publishing, and then particularly in the 1930s, in the 1940s. And of course, she emerged through the Harlem Renaissance. And one thing that I think is important, and excuse me, I'm getting to the answer. <laughs> Just yeah. give me a second. <laughs> like, can you get to the point, brother? Um, <laughs> one of the things that, that inspired, one of the things about the, that happened during the Harlem Renaissance is it was really the first time that black writers were able to publish uh, their novels and their work in a, in a very public sort of forum. Like previously, uh, and particularly, there was a first time in which, uh, you know, even non-black folks were reading the literature of black people, you know, at a pretty significant level. And so because of that, there emerged this debate between writers, uh, between black writers, a certain segment of uh, the debate was uh, 
Du Bois and others who argued that black literature needs to show black people functioning and acting in an upstanding manner to persuade away white racist ideas. The other side of the debate was, and let me say that that side of the debate was Du Bois, Richard Wright. The other side of the debate was Zora Neale Hurston and even Langston Hughes, who argued that the, the job of the writer, the black writer, is to share black people as they are in all their imperfections. And if white people see a black person acting negatively and think something negatively about black people, they're the problem, <laughs> not the person who created uh, the, that, that sort of tale of that story because black people are imperfect. And so there was this debate between these writers and I understood both positions, but I really admired the, the position of Zora Neale Hurston in which she basically stated that I don't need to show that black people are equal because I know that black people are equal. And I'm going to show them. I'm gonna show rural black folk. I'm gonna show working class black folk. I'm going to share their tales. And, and I'm gonna show that I love their tales. And I don't even need to change the language that they use the idioms that they use, because that's what's beautiful. And so that inspires me. It, it inspires me, and not just for black folk, but just for people, you know, allowing people to be themselves. And, 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 and as opposed to this constant sort of judgmental ways in which we're, we're constantly thinking that particularly groups of people are the problem, as opposed to the policies and conditions uh, that they are essentially trying to survive in. Absolutely. So I think um, the question is, how do you stand up to a racist? So I don't know if that means you yourself or how we should all do that. So I'd say go for both. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an incredibly important question. And, and I think it is, it is different if the person is a loved one or a friend, then if it's a person on the street. <laughs> I, I think personally, the approach should be different. And the, the other thing I, I would say is the approach should be different depending on what you want to do. Like, do you just want to stand up to the racist and tell her or him what he or she did was wrong and racist? Or do you want to help them begin the process of transforming themselves? And personally, I don't think it is, it is if a person just decides, you know what, I just want to tell them about themselves, <laughs> right, that there's anything wrong with that. You know whose responsibility it is to transform ourselves? It's our responsibilities. And so if you decide, okay, I don't want to, even in my, you know, my, 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 my crazy uncle, I don't want to do that, then I think that that's fine. But if you decide that that's something you want to do, then I think it's important to understand that 
people, one of the ways you can understand how people are functioning is almost to understand their racist ideas as like an addiction and approach them as if they're addicted. And, and what that means is us having a conversation with them, a single conversation with them to stop sort of uh, uh, you know, consuming alcohol is not going to, to do much. You have to figure out what is the root of the addiction itself? What, what is causing this person to constantly be attracted to the internalization of these ideas? And you simultaneously have to develop a tremendous amount of trust. They have to trust you <laughs> in order for you to be that sort of purveyor of transformation. Now, I mean, I think if, if it's just somebody you want to stand up to <laughs> and, and tell them um, who they are, what they are, one of the things you can do very quickly is, is ask the person, uh, how do you define a racist idea? Um, or how do you define a racist? And most people don't even know how to define that, those terms. And if they refuse to define it, then you define it for them and tell them, based on this definition, what you just did was racist. Um, and, and then if they say, no, I'm not racist, oh, OK. So then how do you define the term racist? You see where this is going? Because uh, typically, when you tell people that what they just did was racist, the common response is, I'm not racist. But then they can't even define the term. And you're demonstrating that. That's um, very interesting. I was, um, when you just made that comment, I think back of, um, and, and I think, you know, as a young um, girl growing up, um, I've had several experiences that were racist. And I think um, how I was taught at home was, you know, you stand up for yourself, you know, but at, at night you have to be able to lay down with a clean conscience and a clean heart because you have to account for your actions and how you treat others. And I spent a great deal of my time, and I hate to say it now, but feeling sorry for people, right? So like, if you are a kid and you are taught to hate people, you have a very miserable childhood because there may be several kids that you want to play with, but you can't because at home you're told you have to hate the person. And it's so much energy to hate. <laughs> it's so much energy to like not just spread and show love, right? And I think many people who may be racist I think there's some vulnerability things happening there. Even the person that is really combative and says, I'm not a racist, right? Like what you've just done, you've just like made me seem like I'm crazy, right? Like I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that you're right, right? So I have to defend that. And I think that when we share our stories, because stories are extremely important, we expose some of that vulnerability and I think if we continue to share those stories, maybe it start, maybe it can start to break down some of those walls, right? And I think even with me, like with my students, one of my touch points is um, if I see a student experiencing something, one of my first things to do is to share a piece of me first, because I got to model that, and hopefully the student reciprocates that, and that helps to break down some of the doors. Um, what are your thoughts with sharing stories 
um, related to vulnerability in spaces where you are speaking to people who are extremely combative about I'm not a racist and things of that sort. So I, I think what you just stated, I think so so eloquently, is is precisely why I decided to write how to be an anti-racist in the way that I wrote it. And for those of you who haven't read uh, that book, it is largely uh, personal narrative in which I share uh, the times in which I <laughs> was thinking that there was particularly something wrong with, with black people in the context in which how and why I was doing that. And I didn't completely realize this, uh, like it wasn't necessarily intentional in the sense that I was like, whoa, you know what, people are going to be more receptive to thinking about what they've said and done if another person is just sharing what they have said and done. I wasn't thinking about that, but when the book was finished and people <laughs> responded and told me, uh, you know, it, it made sense. And, 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 and so I think that that's, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking, though, that uh, people aren't necessarily responsive to you just lecturing them and, and you telling them what's wrong with them. And I also knew and thought very clearly that to be racist historically has been to deny that one is being racist, but to be anti-racist is to actually acknowledge the times in which we're being racist. And so that was sort of the, my guidepost. And, but I, you know, to your, to your point, I, I, you know, going even back to that example of the, the person who's facing an addiction, like for you to share, I mean, the reasons why many people who are involved in sort of counter addiction programs have had the addiction uh, is because sharing what you went through and where you are is just so powerful to people because part of what's happening is you are sitting down next to them as opposed to standing above them. And y'all know we respond better to people who sit down next to us, right, than, than people who stand above us. Absolutely. Hi. Question? So I think you asked about a book um, for young people based on how to be an anti-racist that's similar to Stamp Junior, as we call it, uh, which I did with, with Jason Reynolds. So actually, that book is in the works. Um, <laughs> so the one and only Nick Stone, who is most known for her New York Times bestseller, Dear Martin, um, is adapting how to be an anti-racist for, for young people. And it's actually going to be coming out in January. And what's so cool about the book 
is, so I, I, I think I shared with you yeah. about how, so how to be uh, is, and so what, what Nick does is she uh, becomes a character in how to be a young anti-racist, as we're calling it, and she is speaking to me. So the book is written in the second person with sort of her as the narrator speaking to me and basically sharing with me about my story and what happened to me. Uh, and then the end, the book closes with, with me at 17 years old uh, speaking back to Nick after being told <laughs> my own story and how powerful uh, it is and it was. And actually it's, that moment is right before I write the speech for the Martin Luther King oratorical contest. So How to Be an Anti-Racist opens with me giving this speech, this deeply anti-black speech as a senior in high school. And so How to Be a Young Anti-Racist closes with, I received this book, <laughs> and now I'm gonna completely rewrite <laughs> this speech. Hi. You said Work Mose? Fort Mose. Yes. Okay, good. Fort Mose, is every, everybody uh, familiar with Fort Mose? So Fort Mose, uh, in the 1750s, 1760s? 1738, wow. So many of us are familiar with uh, that during the enslavement era, it was imagined that black people would run north, uh, but particularly black people who were enslaved in South Carolina and eventually Georgia would actually run south. And they would typically run south to Florida, specifically to Fort Mose and other places uh, where you had a lot of uh, runaways who, who, who were basically given freedom by the Spanish who were ruling Florida at the time and it allowed the, the, the Spanish to build up their military arsenal through you know, enslaved black people like at a place like Fort, Fort Mose. And so Florida has a deep, rich history of resistance you know, to slavery and, and certainly to settler colonialism. Hi, Ooh, I got one right here and two and three. So there's so many ways to respond to that. Um, I think what, 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 I would, what I would say to, to, a, to a parent, particularly a concerned parent, is that what we actually want to teach children, white children, is something called racial equality. Uh, we, we, we want to teach them that, that they should not be connecting skin color to positive or negative behaviors. And I would also convey to that, to that parent that studies are showing that white preschool children, the majority of them are already doing that. And they're doing that 
because we're not actively teaching them to not do that. <laughs> we're not actively teaching them uh, that there's a human rainbow. And all the colors in the human rainbow are beautiful, and they're all connected. And I would also, though, take a step back, especially if I had time with that parent, and, and, and share with them that about a decade ago, there was a very um, prominent uh, white supremacist propagandist uh, named Bill Whitaker. And Bill Whitaker wrote this uh, screed uh, called The Mantra that became extremely popular in underground sort of white supremacist circles. And the most popular line in that screed that became the mantra literally for the white supremacist movement was that anti-racist is code for anti-white. And that idea has now gone mainstream. And regular parents don't know that they are articulating a white supremacist talking point. That is deep. I can't even explain it. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but but what they're also white supremacists also say is not just anti-racism, but diversity, multiculturalism, democracy. <laughs> I mean, you name it. According to them, it's all anti-white. There it goes. Because he clearly does not sleep. <laughs> well, first, uh, did you say your name was Franz Fanon Williams? OK, I like your parents. <laughs> uh, Franz Fanon, a very prominent um, uh, anti-colonial writer. Uh, and so I'm actually, one book that I'm reading that's just fascinating for me is, is, is a book called uh, Finding Latinx. Uh, and it's actually written by um, a, a Cuban-American woman from Miami. Uh, and she went basically on a tour of the United States uh, talking to uh, Latinx people in not only you know, Southwest, but West Coast, Midwest, um, uh, Northeast, um, Latinx people with African or indigenous sort of heritage, really trying to sort of understand what it means to be uh, Latinx in, in the 21st century and all of the diversity uh, and, you know, of the community. And it's just a fascinating you know, read for me. Uh, and I try <laughs> to consistently and constantly you know, learn about uh, communities, you know, and issues that I that I wasn't necessarily formally trained in. 
Um, yeah, I, I suspect when your governor finds out. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and I, let me just say, I, I think that um, there's a lot of tragic things that are happening right now. And uh, there are a lot of uh, things that are leading to people obviously losing their lives or losing their lives early. But aside from, from, from those lethal matters, I mean, there, there's few things that to me are more tragic than literally taking books out of the hands of our young people uh, and then claiming it's in their interest. <laughs> We will take one more question for tonight. Hey, you're the lucky person. That is not a stupid question. So, in the summer of 2020, we collectively had the largest series of demonstrations for any topic in American history, according to, to estimates. And of course, those people, uh, we were demonstrating against racism and police violence. In June of 2020, a survey found that 76% of Americans were saying that racism not only exists, but is a big problem. That same survey found that 51% of white Americans we're saying that too. It was the first time that the majority of white Americans were recognizing racism's existence and persistence and seeing it as a problem. And so if you are an elected official and your political livelihood is based on white racist ideas, that you consistently and constantly are able to manipulate to convince people to, uh, that you're actually doing something for them as opposed to hurting them. And you see this wave of your voters, of your constituents, starting to ask different questions, not what's wrong with those black and brown people, but starting to ask questions like, what's wrong with these policies? you are going to want to shore up your political livelihood. And, and the way you're going to do that is you're going to try to change the existential threat. You're gonna to try to change it from people thinking that the, the threat, that the problem is racism, to those same people thinking the problem is anti-racism. And you, the way you're going to do that 
is the same way white supremacists have done it, you know, for centuries in this country, to manipulate and misrepresent those writers who are speaking about racial equality as saying, no, they're actually trying to teach white kids uh, that they're evil because they're white. And then you as a parent, I mean, you trust your elected official, you, you trust this political operative, and you're like, whoa, that's what they're trying to teach? <laughs> and, and so then you support that, and you support them, and then they, they, they begin to seem as if they're defending you, when in reality, they're just manipulating you in the newest way. And so I, I think for me, it certainly is about political sort of livelihood and longevity, uh, because again, when you are, and let me just be even more specific, there's been a lot of studies on the Trump voter and what distinguishes the Trump voter from the non-Trump voter. The number one thing that scholars have found that distinguishes Trump voters from non-Trump voters, it's not just racist ideas, but white voters who think that white people are the primary victims of racism. And so when you <laughs> then create a narrative that this new movement for justice, that this new movement for equality is actually coming to harm white people, you're going to be able to energize people and even convince people who are sort of on the fence. So that's what I think this is about. This is about power, and it's always been about power. You know, centrally, this, this issue of, of, of race and racism, certainly it's been a moral issue, certainly it's been an issue of ignorance, but at its core, it's always been about power. 